1: I'm Rob Attar, Deputy Editor of the magazine. This is the third of our March 2012 podcasts. Don't forget, BBC History magazine is on sale in all good news agents and also on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information. Or you can follow us at twitter.com forward slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash historyextra. BBC History magazine is also now available for the Kindle, you can search for us on Amazon or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash Kindle. Coming up in this week's episode...
0: And One of the things that you have to bear in mind when you're visiting any Tudor site, in a commas, is that it has lived through all those centuries since.
1: That was Susanna Lipscomb talking Tudors at The Vine in Hampshire.
2: There was one um, report in an 18th century newspaper that 26 butchers and their wives had slept in the bed. Um, for a wager. Uh, I think that's pushing it slightly.
1: And that was Kate Hay on the curious story of the Great Bed of Ware. For our first interview, the magazine's editor, Dave Musgrove, has been on location to The Vine, a National Trust property near Basingstoke in Hampshire. He invited the Tudor specialist, Susanna Lipscomb, to join him because she's just written a book called A Visitor's Companion to Tudor England. She's also written a piece for the March issue of BBC History magazine on the court of Henry VIII and places to visit associated with that. The Vine was home to one of King Henry's leading courtiers, Lord William Sands. Dave asked Susanna to guide him around the house, pointing out the Tudor highlights and telling him about the life of a Tudor courtier to the king. And if this works your appetite for The Vine... You'll also find a slideshow on our website at historyextra.com forward slash fine.
3: Okay, so we're here in The Vine near Basingstoke, a historic house, and we're going to be talking Tudor. So the first thing we need to do is is describe where we are. So, Susanna, what what sort of things can you see here?
0: Well, we're we're in the long gallery, which is, as it sounds, like a long room, and it has floor-to-ceiling linen fold panelling. So that's oak panelling that's carved to look like the folds of a cloth, linen. And what's distinct about this long gallery is that these panels are beautifully carved with signs of heraldry coats of arms and devices of all the people that the person who built this house knew in the 1520s so it has this incredible quality of being a kind of visual who's who of Tudor England. Everybody that William Lord Sands, who was the builder, knew is represented on the walls here.
3: Okay, so let's talk about the house itself, because obviously we're, this is just one room of the house, so Sands, did Sands build it or did he, did he develop it from something that was already here?
0: There were a few medieval buildings here, but really Sands made this house. He created a very large house. What we have now is a very small version of the original. Sands was a courtier under Henry VII and under Henry VIII, and it's under Henry VIII that he really rose. He became um, knight of the garter, he was created a baron, and he was given uh, a position at court that he had great authority, so that he also had a lot of money, and he came to the vine to build himself a house that reflected that wealth and status. And this room is one of many rooms that did that by displaying his connections and his wealthy associates.
3: OK, so is this room the very peak of Tudor showing off, or would you actually get more showy rooms than this?
0: This is pretty good for early Tudor period. This is this is very rare that there's a long gallery in the early Tudor period. The Elizabethans build loads of them. Henry VIII builds one at Nonsuch Palace in the f- late 1530s. But for sans to have built this early earlier in the 16th century, in the 1520s, was remarkable in it of itself to build a room of this size and then to decorate it with these emblems. It really is a testament to his position.
3: Yeah, because in terms of size, it's, uh, cracky, what is it, about 40 metres, maybe, something like that? It's, it's, certainly, it's certainly a long space, isn't it? And um, maybe uh, four or five metres across. So it's, it's a very a narrow, long room, which is why it's called a long gallery.
0: Yes, it's a perfect place for getting exercise when it's either raining outside and you don't want to go out there or when it's sunny and you don't want to go out and get a tan. So you can walk up and down here and people who were visiting him could admire all these people that he knew and could display them on his walls. So it's, it's really ostentatious.
3: Um, so is it actually like an early gymnasium that it was for exercise purposes
0: it is exactly that it's for exercise much more sedate than perhaps in a modern gym but yep. for walking for perhaps for uh playing ball that sort of thing balls yep. um was entirely possible in a space like this
3: okay so let's have a, a wander around and see some of the some of the features that are here because uh, as you said the, the paneling is 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 quite it's quite amazing isn't it it's or well, certainly in terms of its age and its survival it's it's fantastic that It's still here and as, as you said it's it's floor to ceiling wooden paneling so what
0: sort of things can we see here Well, what we see actually is panelling that has survived intact from the Tudor period. It has been painted since. It was painted in the 1840s, which is why it has this slightly sort of um, darker quality to it. But we can see engravings. So, for example, over here we've got the pomegranate which is one of the symbols of Catherine of Aragon the the symbol of Granada and at the top of that panel there's the a carving of a castle which was the symbol of Castile so that panel is all about Catherine of Aragon and the fact that Sands knew her and could feel a personal association with her um but is that is that
3: would people recognize that or would would you hear that just stood in front of it and said look I know Catherine of Aragon this is I'm saying this
0: People would have recognised it, absolutely. People could read heraldry in a way that we can read brand Mm. logos, like a Nike symbol, you know what that is. And they knew it uh, of people's heraldry. So I think they thought perhaps a lot, well, as visually as we do, because many people weren't literate. And so these little associations absolutely worked for them. Mm.
3: Mm. And so the expectation was that visitors' guests would come here and they would be standing around waiting for drinks to be served or whatever and they'll be looking at the panels and 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 getting a feel of how important their host was
0: exactly right yes and for those who could read some of them have initials on or mottos Um, so for example up here we've got one for william sands himself ws Mm. and then at the top we have one of his crests i think that's the winged half goat which is one of the ones that he had Mm. so we've got sort of four layers of panels here so some of them you really have to crane your neck up to see um, and others have, are of Henry VIII himself, so there are fleur-de-lis here, there are um, Tudor roses, mm-hmm. um, and actually one of the sweetest ones is, is is the Tudor rose and the pomegranate, which grow together on one stem.
3: And what's, and what's that depicting?
0: Which depicts Henry VIII and his wife, Catherine of Aragon. So it's one of the things that dates uh, this room, and we can date it through dendrochronology, through counting the tree rings, the, the age of the wood, but yeah. also through who's depicted here. So Catherine of Aragon is here and Thomas Wolsey is here. Mm. So that means it has to have been created at some point between 1515 and 1529. Ah, here's one of the finest. Have a look at this one. That's the Cardinal's Hat of Thomas Wolsey. So you've got these things that can be read very clearly to say who Sands associates with. And the funny thing is, for us today, to do this to a room, it, it looks somewhat sycophantic, <laughs> mm. because you know they're going to come and visit. So you put up the sort of bishop's mitre, or you put up, uh, you know, the cardinal's hat. But for the Tudor period, they loved that sort of thing. So later, under Elizabeth, courtiers would end up building their houses in the shape of E's for her for her initial, and actually even earlier in the reign it was considered quite normal to represent your your patrons and your associates in this way
3: mm. so did did sands run into trouble in later years then for some of the depictions for some of the emblems that he put up here because obviously they fell out of favor as as the as the years went on
0: funnily enough he didn't sands is one of the lucky men or perhaps one might say canny men who managed to survive henry the court with his head intact he really knew how to do what, an, what a Tudor courtier needed to do, which was to bend like a reed in the wind. So he has this amazing rise that he is known under Henry VII, uh, particularly gets to know Henry VII through his wife, Marjorie Bray, and he's given positions of authority. He's asked to take uh, Margaret, who's Henry VII's daughter, up to Scotland to marry James IV. Mm-hmm. And Henry VIII gets him to do a very similar task and take his younger sister, Mary, to France to marry Louis the Twelfth. So... Sands is obviously seen as a safe pair of hands. And he's given these positions of authority. And one of the things I love about Sands is that he is a bit like a Tudor flashman. He appears at all these important occasions at Tudor events. So he is, for example, at uh, Anne Boleyn's coronation. And he's there again as a juror at her trial. He's at Edward VI's baptism, and then he's a couple of weeks later at the, at the funeral of Jane Seymour. He's there to try the Exeter conspirators in the late 1530s. So he, he, he really is, has a front seat at, to history at this period of time. But he has that because he's willing to do what it takes. So he depicts Catherine of Aragon on the panels here, but he's willing to go to Anne Boleyn's coronation, mm. unlike someone like Thomas More.
3: Okay, so he was flexible in his in his approach, very sensible. But so he didn't have to come back here and have his 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 master carver, you know, come and excise um, people's people's emblems when when things went wrong for them.
0: It's a good question because, of course, at Hampton Court, that's exactly what happened. All the symbols of. Catherine of Aragon and then Anne Boleyn following her were knocked out at various times and replaced with the badges of the next queen. Mm. But no, Sands never does that. Um, And that's really interesting also because Henry VIII visits him here on three occasions, one a year after his coronation, but then again in the 1530s, 1531 and 1535. And you'd think by that point it might have been slightly uncomfortable for Henry to have Catherine of Aragon displayed so obviously on the walls and as we'll see on the stained glass downstairs. Mm but obviously he, he doesn't mind so much that Sands has to do anything about it. Oh,
3: okay. So Henry Henry came here. Um, and do we, know, do we know what he did here at the Vine? What's, what, what went on?
0: I should imagine that Henry did what he did when he went to visit anywhere. He went hunting,
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, because he loved to do that. And, he, and this are be- surrounded still now by beautiful countryside, perfect place to go for a ride.
3: Yeah, OK. And, and let's talk a bit about the court, because that's, that's part of the reason why we're here. So Sands was, was as you said, one of the, the favoured courtiers of, of Henry VIII. Um, so we need to understand how the, how the Tudor court worked. What, what, what was, the, what was the, you know, the underlying basis for the court?
0: The court was, by definition, anywhere within about 12 miles of where the king was. Right. It's what was literally attendant on the king. It's made up of three parts, the royal household, the privy chamber, and the privy council. And at any one time, that can add up to about 1,000 people who are surrounding the king and attending to his needs. It's the heart of power it's the seat of government it's the center of culture it's the center of fashion of learning of literature uh, and it's the place to get anything done so if you want to achieve anything in the tudor period if you want honor or glory or fame or just to do something worthwhile and to achieve your political goals you have to go to court
3: okay so so sans you know because he was a man of stature and wanted to to make something of himself he had to be attendant on henry exactly Okay, so when Henry came here, can we assume that he would have come with his huge retinue, or did he sort of thin down a bit as he progressed around the country?
0: He would have thinned down a bit, but he would still be travelling in some style that would have been... We don't know the exact numbers for when he came to visit Sands here, Mm. but at other times we have records of him travelling with about 100 or so people when he was on progress. Mm. So it's still quite a lot of people that Sands has to accommodate. But he's lucky. His house is almost the size of Hampton (coughs) Court. He can accommodate that many people. Now it's much smaller because in the late mid-17th century, uh, when it was bought um, by Challoner Chute, it was reduced significantly and made to its current size.
3: Okay, so we're lucky that this room survives then, I, I presume. I mean, how often do rooms like this survive? It's, it's, it's fairly rare, isn't it?
0: Well, there are a significant number of them, but you're absolutely right that later generations have different fashions and quite often get rid of them, and, and many of the rooms at the Vine aren't 16th century they've been replaced with 18th century furnishings completely done up so that explains also the classical portico on the front of the the building so we are very lucky to have this room
3: because mm. I mean, often long galleries they sort of survive but they've been di- divided up so you can't really get the sense of them in in, in other major houses they've kind of they've fashions have, have, have led to smaller rooms so you can't quite see the extent of them as you can here.
0: Exactly. At Burley House, for example, mm. that's become several rooms, the George's rooms, rather than seeing the full length of the long gallery that Burley intended there.
3: Yeah. OK. So, I mean, we've, we've got this, this bust of, of Henry Eighth here, which, as you were saying, is, is probably a, a later a uh, later example, but um, it's, it's good to stand in front of Henry and think about uh, think about the way he structured his, his his country and the way he ran his country. So you were saying that the court was, you know, was where it all happened. Could there been much business done uh, when he was out and about around the country? Did, did you know, the, the business carry on even when he was away from, from London and, and his main palaces?
0: Yes, it did. The, the court followed him around and the, the Privy Council met nearly every day. Now, Henry didn't have to be at that council. In fact, most of the time he wasn't. Um, but if it wasn't actually with him, they would be sending messages to him. And quite a lot of the time it did travel with him to his various palaces. It is quite something, isn't it, to be in front of this bust of Henry VIII and think that Henry himself actually walked up and down this long gallery that we're standing in now.
3: I mean, that's an interesting point, actually. That he would have been—he was a big man, wasn't he, Henry, in his later years. So it's not that wide a room. If you'd been stood here as well, he would have been brushing shoulders with him. So, I mean, but presumably, if Henry had been in the room, then everyone else would have been out? Or would, he, would, would, you, would there have been a crowd of people around him in this room?
0: Henry was always surrounded by people. Henry was very rarely alone. Uh, we, we shouldn't think of him having any sort of sense of privacy that we have in the in the modern sense. And you're right, he was big. He was almost six foot two at the time when the average height for men was five foot seven and a half. Mm. So, I mean, that's tall by today's standards, but it was very, very tall back then. And and what's interesting is he came here at various stages in his life. So he came here soon after his coronation when he's is 18, 19 years old um, and at that stage, reputed to be one of the, the best-looking men in Christendom mm. and athletic and um, uh, energetic and charismatic. And then in the 1530s where um, things... Are, he's still a fine figure of a man, slightly bigger. Mm. His waist has gone from 32 to 37 inches. He's mm. a bit more like a rugby player by that point. Um, but, you know, he hasn't quite entered his period of descent. So, the actually, the figure we need to think of when we're thinking about the vine is, is the youthful Henry rather than the Henry of yeah. his last decade and his yeah. obesity.
3: And uh, what, what do we know about Sands? What was what sort of a, I mean, you said he was a, a flashman type figure. Do we actually know much about his personality? Have we we been able to glean anything about that?
0: We don't know that much about him. I actually think he's a perfect subject for some historical novelist to write about because he, because he has this wonderful position where he appears all the time, popping up at places. But of his actual character, we don't know that much, okay. except that, as we know, he was willing to bend and be flexible when the occasion called for it.
3: OK, well, I'm sure there's some budding historical novelists listening to this, so so there's, there's a tip. Um, just thinking about the room itself... Um, Obviously, there's a lot of stuff here that's, that's clearly later than the Tudor period. There's some, you know, some rococo tables and, and such like. Um, there's a large modern scaffold because they're doing some conservation work and there's some huge portraits. Um, the question that springs to mind to me is how far can, can we evoke what it would have been in the early 16th century? How different do you think it would have been? What sort of things would have been here that aren't today?
0: You're absolutely right. A lot of the things that we can see in the Rococo tables and obviously the scaffolding wouldn't have been here. And a lot of these were brought back later trips to the you know, Grand Tours uh, and they're displayed here as objects of wealth from a much later period. And one of the things that you have to bear in mind when you're visiting any Tudor site, in a commas, is that it has lived through all those centuries since. And it's, it's an accident of history when things have remained the same because... Later generations didn't have the same attitude to conservation that we had. I, the, the, sub, the example I always think of is that Nonsuch palace was given to Barbara Villiers, one of Charles II's mistresses or former mistress, and then demolishes it and sells it off in parts to pay off her gambling debts Mm -hmm. so they didn't have the same attitude to conservation and quite frankly they didn't often like what they saw so when William and Mary went to Hampton Court at the end of the 17th century they thought it was gloomy and dark and old-fashioned and they wanted to knock it down and build a new palace. You have to realize that they didn't they didn't care for it in the same way and so it when we have something like this, which is a room which, at least in it, interior decoration, if not in the objects then put in it, uh, is essentially as it would have been in the 16th century. It's a very special place indeed.
3: I mean, your book is entitled The Visitor's Guide to, to Tudor England, uh, Visitor's Companion, sorry, Visitor's Companion's to um, Tudor. So what would you suggest when people are visiting these properties? What sort of things should they look out for? How should they try and read the places they visit?
0: One of the things I've tried to do in the book is to provide a guide to do exactly that how to strip away all the things that have accrued in the intervening centuries and take you back to see what the Tudors would have seen when they were at these houses whether it's the panelling or the the covering on the the floor or the fireplaces or whatever it is the plasterwork ceilings that would have been there And to point out what wouldn't have been there as well so that you can take that out and try and imagine these rooms as they would have been lived in. I feel there's a really important sense when you visit places about the tangibility of the past. Uh, Someone said to me that when you visit these places it's only time and not space that separates you from these great characters of the past. And I I find that to be really true. I, I think that you can have a sense of evoking so this is the place where they might have thought about this or they must have made that decision or this is where they were at that stage in their lives and it 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 brings it all to life much more mm,
3: that's an appealing sentiment isn't it so so when you when you're at these properties what would you say are is is characteristically tudor what are the things that someone wandering around ought to have have his or her eyes peeled for i mean wooden paneling like this obviously is a good example any other really obvious things that you can say ah and you can say to your your wife or your husband that's tudor you know
0: well there's a whole range of different things so at the bottom end of the spectrum you've got um the sort of the country, uh, sort of chocolate box cottage that we think of as being Tudor so that black and white, black and white scheme by the way is generally Victorian Mm -hmm. uh, but you've got the wattle and daub so you have um, something that would have been timber frames infilled with a mixture of hay and and dung and all sorts of things like that Um, so that's the basic house and the smallest possible house in the Tudor period was made with um, a, a frame of one called a crook frame of a tree split in half that bends in the middle to form an A-shape. So that's the basic house. And then you've got elaborations on that theme with places like Little Morton Hall or uh, Goresworth Hall in Cheshire. Beautiful black and white houses um, which have intricate designs. Look out on the whole for small windows. Um, uh, The Tudors... uh, Towards the end of the period, are getting into um, rooms with a view, but earlier on, it's small windows because they could afford panes of glass in um, small pieces. Sure. Um, Look out for the linen fold panelling, look out for uh, brick chimneys, often very finely decorated earlier in the period. So Framlingham Mm. Castle has uh, incongruous uh, Tudor chimneys or Ludlow Castle has beautiful um, carved Tudor chimneys and Thornbury Castle has some amazing ones. Fortunately, the ones at Hampton Court are all from the Victorian period. Mm. Sorry about that. but then later in the period, it all changes. So under Elizabeth, then you need to look out for the prodigy houses, uh, which are great houses of glass. So Hardwick Hall, we've mentioned, mm-hmm. has those acres of glass. Yeah, more, more
3: glass than wall, isn't it?
0: Exactly, exactly. So, and the same is true of somewhere like Montacute. Um, so you're looking for houses built out of the local stone, um, often that sort of beautiful, tawny-coloured stone, acres of glass, and then bigger rooms. The other thing to look out for um, early in the period is a great hall, a baron's hall which is a medieval hangover and then as the century goes on look out more for things like long galleries.
3: Mm, okay, so all sorts of interesting things to look out for. I, I, I like the chimneys. Chimneys are, are good fun. Uh, the Framlingham chimneys are fantastic, aren't they? So it's a very strange, like a, a medieval castle with these with these exotic chimneys, you know, towering away. Well. It's a fantastic place basically. um Okay, so I think we've, we've sort of covered uh, the, the, the basics of the story here, so I think what we should do is, is have a wander and see what else we can find in the vine. Okay. Right, so we've come downstairs, now we're directly below the Oak Gallery, and we're in uh, what I believe they call the Stone Gallery. Which That's right. I, yeah. can, I can see the reason why.
0: Yes, and actually over there we've got all sorts of bits of pieces that were dredged out of the um, lake, which are from the original Tudor house um, that was sort of thrown away when it was parts of it were demolished in the 17th century.
3: Okay, we're so, we're standing in front of the, of the fireplace.
0: Yes, and above the fireplace, we've got this incredible terracotta roundel. So, it's a head of a Roman emperor, um, sort of classical bust that's set in this uh, concave bowl and surrounded by designs that include things like uh, laurel wreaths and Tudor roses. And the wonderful thing is that this has probably been in situ for 500 years. Uh, It was previously thought that this had come from the Holbein Gate at Whitehall, but um, some of my former colleagues at Historic World Palaces have done lots of research on terracotta roundels and figured out that this has probably always been here because it's in remarkably good condition, which is sort of congruent with it having been inside all this time. And why it's important is because Woolsey commissioned a number of terracotta roundels to hang at Hampton Court, and there are Ten of them on the outsides of the palace now. And they were from this craftsman called Giovanni de Mariano, who was a, um, an incredible Italian craftsman. Um, and they are symbols of rule. So uh, Hampton Court, quite amusingly, I think, on the, on the outside, they have Nero and Tiberius, as if that's a symbol of rule, not knowing that they did a very bad job. This is thought to be the Roman Emperor Probus, who introduced the vine to England... Yeah. So, hence the play on words, and Tudors loved little puns like that. So, it's, it's amazing. If we think that this was probably put here in the 1520s, and so, again, when Henry came here in 1531, 1535, it's very, very possible that this emperor looked down on him as he's looking down on us.
3: That's fascinating. I mean, to, to my uneducated eye, it looks quite modern. Maybe that's just because it's been put in this, in this white plaster surround, but... It, look, it looks surprisingly modern to me,
0: and I think it's also partly because it's in such good nick. It's just that it's so sharp and so beautifully carved, but actually, it's it's from a craftsman in the 1520s.
3: And is it, is that a fairly um, characteristic piece of Tudor work? Is that is it, it? Were they doing a lot of this sort of work, or was it very much limited to high-status things like Hampton Court and, and here? And
0: it's very high status. It's this sort of Italian Renaissance style of sculpture that was seen a lot at Nonsuch Palace um, and so it's it's very impressive because it's so new um, and by having it here it's another way that Sands is saying he's connected to the people the Wolsey's he's connected to people like Wolsey and therefore can use craftsmen that Wolsey can afford to use uh, it's about wealth and ostentation and it, yes it's a lovely piece of showing off really.
3: OK, so we've come to the, the, the chapel now, which is, a, which is a lovely room, isn't it? And uh, again, full of rich oak panelling. So so what here is, is Tudor?
0: The panelling is, and you can spot that because of all the Tudor roses. Um, it's a beautifully carved, um, and you can see the sort of filigree work up there. And the ceiling as well <laughs> has a ver- this uh, sort of geometric pattern that's quite standard for a, a, a Tudor ceiling. Um, and above all, though, the real attraction in here... Uh, is the stained glass windows. These were commissioned by Sands in 1525. He had them made just down the road at Basingstoke. And they're portraits of members of the royal family. So on the Mm. left here, we've got Catherine of Aragon kneeling in prayer. And it's interesting, actually, because you can see her light-colour hair. She had auburn hair, but, you know, we're so used to seeing her on film played by people with dark Spanish hair that we (laughs) forget that. And in the middle, we've got Henry VIII, And on the right, we've got his sister, Margaret, who was Queen of Scotland. But the the picture of Henry VIII is the most surprising one because it's it's that young Henry we were talking about. It's Henry who's clean-shaven and he's got long ginger hair. It's a very surprising image of him. And I think what's interesting is that in the 1530s, when Henry visited a couple more times, he would have come here to pray. And he would have knelt before this in 1531 when he was trying to get out of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, and then in 1535 with Anne Boleyn. So that must have been a bit awkward as they stood <laughs> stared after this picture of Catherine. So what was what was
3: Sand's trying to do with this, other than just um, you know bow a sequence to to the to the king? Was it was it, was he trying to get any other messages across?
0: I think that's chiefly it. It's chiefly about stating his obedience to the king again about demonstrating his wealth and his loyalty it's a symbol of loyalty so that when the king visits he can be pleased at Sands being a courtier is all about trying to be in such uh, a position with the king that you are in his favour and that you can um, ask things of him and speak to him the truth uh, without displeasing him at least that's what Castiglione says the perfect courtier ought to do how,
3: how sure could we be that this is as it was? I mean, stained glass is a fairly fragile sort of thing. Is it? Is this? Do we know that this is actually exactly as it was? Has it been restored? Would it been? Um, has it been recolored? Do you think? Or is this? Is this a fairly good reflection of what we might have been looking at back in the day?
0: I think it certainly has had some restoration, but I would imagine that these colours. You can see some places where it needs it as well. But we can see that these colours are very um, nice and bright and that is likely to have been as it was the tudors really liked bright colors in fact quite often quite garish combinations yeah. um and this was a way of of displaying that high status um this is a high status product and craftsmanship okay um perhaps we should
3: just mention briefly so that the ceiling um it's, it's a very nice ceiling isn't it quite colorful geometric pattern um so you think that's that's got tudor tudor echoes there
0: yeah it has tudor all over it um it's in blue and gold and red um and in fact many many other ceilings um in royal palaces might be decorated in a similar way so this again is a sign of ostentation sans mixes with the best and he can host the best yeah. and therefore he builds somewhere where they would be happy to be received
3: but it's not, um, it's not quite as good as the one in Hampton Court, is it? In the sense it's not, of, it's is not is quite it, as fine. But is that... I mean, is that... Would that have been deliberate? It's like, as you were talking about earlier, you don't want to go too far and and have a better house than the king. Would that have been something that would have been in the mind of people like Sands and other courtiers?
0: I imagine it might be. I mean... Orsi, of course, makes a a great play about how his house is always the king's house and he builds apartments at Hampton Court for Henry um, and then when Henry takes a shine to it, Orsi doesn't mind, in inverted commas, because, of course, it's always been the king's house. Mm. Um, Perhaps you also don't want your house to look too good so that the king doesn't want to nick it.
3: Okay, so we've come outside now, and we're, we're walking along the path that's going to take us round to the front facade of the house. Um, and as you said, there's a, the, the brickwork looks looks pretty Tudor to me, so what are we seeing here?
0: Well, we can see a beautiful house. And, I mean, it's pretty big as it is now. You have to remember it was much, much bigger than this. Uh, One of the things that's characteristically Tudor about the brickwork is that it has these beautiful lozenge, diamond-shaped patterns picked out in black across it. And, of course, we've got some good Tudor chimneys here as well. Uh, So it's... um, Although the windows are all now sash windows and all... uh, very modern by comparison to the Tudor period this is still a spectacular and very beautiful Tudor looking house the,
3: the thing that's always struck me about Tudor houses is, is is the brickwork you can always feel that you can sort of immediately spot a Tudor house because of, of, the, of the sort of the, the color of the bricks if anything um, is that is that a is, is my sensation correct there is that a good way to 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 spot a Tudor house
0: Yes, absolutely. Red brickwork, often inter- interspersed with black brickwork, um, it's with these patterns picked out on it. That's characteristically Tudor. That's something to look out for. I mean, houses are built in brick and stone. I mean, even here we can see that the edges, the corners, are fixed with stone, and that's that's quite common in the Tudor period as well. Um, but this is this is a fine mansion, and so he's used both. Did
3: did they build well the Tudors? Did they build? To last. I mean, this house clearly has stood here for um, for uh, 500 years or so. Um, I don't know how much work has been done to keep it standing here, but did did they build well?
0: By some modern standards, there are things that they didn't do well, and of course we we're always struck by the. Uh strange angles you find yourself at in Tudor houses and not everything is is quite perpendicular when it should be or horizontal when it should be but at the same time yes they did put a lot of money into these buildings and a lot of them stand um obviously the 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 cheaper Tudor housing um that was thrown up didn't last but these are built to stand here as a memorial to their owners
3: Hmm okay so just to wrap up i mean we're still outside this lovely tudor house we've been inside we've seen all sorts of, of lovely things so just give us a uh, your reasons why people should come and visit tudor heritage sites so what are they going to learn how are they going to advance their knowledge of tudor history by by visiting places like this
0: you can't really imagine what it might have been like to be a tudor or to live in that period without going to tudor houses there you can evoke the sense of the past and as we said earlier walk in the footsteps of people that you know the names of and have a sense of what life might have been like for them it's quite fun picking out the tudor elements in a house and spotting things like the chimneys and the windows and the and the paneling on the walls and knowing that tudors walked and lived there it's places where they loved and Uh, ate and prayed and died. And it's quite atmospheric uh, and gives you a real sense of the past.
3: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com historyextra history extra. Just go to indeed.com historyextra history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: So that was Susanna Lipscomb. Her book, A Visitor's Companion to Tudor England is published on the 15th of March by Ebrie. You can read her feature on Tudor Courtiers in the March issue of BBC History magazine. And remember, we have a slideshow of images from The Vine at historyextra.com forward slash vine. If you want to see The Vine for yourself, you'll find details on the National Trust website at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash vine. Before our next interview, I'd like to announce that we're running a lecture series at the Tower of London over the spring and early summer. Our first event features military historian and TV presenter Saul David, alongside maritime archaeologist, historian and author Sam Willis. And they'll be discussing the subject of the Army or the Navy, which did more to put Britain on the map. The event takes place on Thursday the 19th of April, and you can find more information and buy a ticket on our website at historyextracom Lecture. The Great Bed of Ware, an enormous Tudor piece of furniture, is one of the Victoria and Albert Museum's most popular attractions. Yet for the rest of this year, it's heading back to the small town in Hertfordshire whose name it bears, Ware. Dave Musgrove headed off to the V&A to take a look at the bed before it moves, in the company of Kate Hay curator in the department of furniture textiles and fashion at the museum
3: okay so we stood in front of a, a large bed um, so Kate, if you could just
2: give me a sense of what we're looking at here well it's a very large oak bed with carved uh, posts what we'd call a four poster bed um, it's 10 foot square over 10 foot square and more than eight feet high in fact it's the largest tudor bed to survive um, no other beds of this size are known. And it's probable, it's probable that no other beds of this size were ever made.
3: Mm. Okay, and it, as you say, it's a, it's a very large bed, but it's also got some quite elaborate carvings on it. Um, so clearly someone's invested a bit of money into, into creating this.
2: Yes, this bed was designed with great care. The, the strange thing about the Great Bed of Ware is that there's no documentary evidence at all about why it was made. So we're just assuming that it was made um, for one of the inns at Ware because it was known to be at in an um, inn um, in 1596. But there's no documentary evidence about why it was made. But it was obviously made with great care because, as you can see, the posts are very, very finely turned and carved with complex um, floral uh, canvas uh, carvings on them. And the bedhead is particularly interesting with two arches containing um, marquetry of um, classical scenes with swans swimming in the centre. And these would have been made in London. and Well, possibly the entire bed was made in London, we don't know. Um, but they, they were rather special for the time, and they were made by probably by German craftsmen in southwark and they 're enclosed by a framework which incorporates um, figures symbolizing uh, were well, there two male and one female figures with baskets of fruit on their head on their heads, and we think that they symbolize fertility, which of course would be you know, very appropriate for a large double bed of this kind. And also on the sides, there are figures of satires um, in profile, which obviously symbolise lust and you know, sexual prowess and so on. So um, it's very, very carefully done, but it's not top quality of the sort that a, an aristocrat would have had. So we think it was made very carefully for an inn, but probably as an attraction to attract tourists to the inn.
3: Ah, I see. So it's not a, a high-status piece of furniture,
2: no, it was never intended as a very high-status piece of furniture, but nevertheless very carefully carved.
3: Okay, uh, so yeah, just looking at the uh, the headboard there, um, it looks it looks as if it's been in the wars a bit. So you haven't done much restoration to that.
2: No, a decision was taken to leave the bed in exactly uh, the state. Um, We see it today. So parts of the marquetry um, is missing, but we we thought that that was more true to its uh, origins. We didn't want to add anything. Um, But what we found very interesting was when we analysed the paintwork on the figures, the three uh, mythological figures with baskets of fruit on their head on the headboard. um, They have traces of uh, very bright paint, and um, analysis showed that this was original paint. So. If you could imagine it in the 16th century, it would have looked quite gaudy with these three very brightly painted figures um, on the headboard. And the um, panels of marquetry would have been uh, in pale and dark wood, so they would have looked very bright as well. So it wouldn't have looked as black um, as it does today. It would have looked very, very bright and um, and, um cheerful and goes on.
3: so we can see the carvings we can see the wooden frame, um, we can see the the ceiling, which again is is, is, is carved with nice uh, nice patterns on
2: it um, and also well, the, the tester is actually quite mm-hmm. interesting okay. because if you compare the present day tester, which is very neatly carved and very there's very few damage very, very few areas of damage on it you want perhaps to-, to, to explain what a tester is? ah the tester is what you might call a canopy across the top of the bed and it 's supported by these enormous um, oak posts at mm. the corners and by the um, bed head at the back of the bed but actually within that that's like almost like um, um, a room setting and which you can draw the curtains around within that there's a still a bed frame um, with a separate set of legs and sides um, across which the, um, the bed the bedding is piled up
3: Ah, I see. So, this is
2: like a mini room, and you could draw the curtains, and you would be screened. You would have privacy and warmth. Right, I
3: see. Inside, yeah. So, so the bed frame underneath the, the <coughs> covering that you've got on now, it, that was just a, a fairly plain piece of, of timber, I presume, down there, isn't it? Yes,
2: they're very plain and utilitarian. And the side pieces have got um, holes drilled in them for um, stringing the, um, the hemp rope which would have been the, be- the, be- the base of the bed mm-hmm. um, so th- there's a multiplicity of levels of um, bedding on the bed, first of all you'd have your hemp rope strung across which had to be very tight of course and then you'd have a bed mat made of plaited rush and on top of that um, we've, got, we've put three different mattresses, one of um, wool, the next one of feathers and the top one of down and this is quite common Uh, This was quite common in the 16th century. And when we redisplayed the bed um, for the British galleries in 2001, uh, we took enormous pains to go back to um, 16th century inventories and uh, descriptions, and we looked at memorial brasses of beds and um, paintings um, to make sure that we could uh, dress the bed as authentically as possible. Mm -hmm. Because one of the problems was um, there's no record of how the bed would have been hung in other words, the hangings around the sides and um, the bedding um, originally. So we had to go back to basics. We acquired the bed just as a, um, a wooden frame. Mm. So um, all, of the, all of the bedding that you see here um, it has been um, hand-woven and um, hand-stitched and dyed with vegetable dyes um, according to the colours that were found most commonly in 16th-century inventories. So we do think that when you look at the bed now... We've got as close as possible to what it would have looked like in the 16th century.
3: So you've gone back for the you've gone for the Tudor look.
2: Yes, definitely. Yeah.
3: And have you ever had the pleasure of lying on this bed? Is it comfortable? Um,
2: No, (laughs) we've had various requests for people to lie on it. But actually, um, because of its age and the fact that um, it was moved around from from inn to inn at Ware, it's actually quite unsteady, Um, especially as at one stage it was cut down. If you look at the posts at the sides, they just stop. There should have been capitals on these side posts. It should have been another foot or two higher. But when when it was moved, we think, from its original inn, it was made for the White Hart in Ware, when it was moved from that inn... Um, the next in I think was had a lower ceiling so they had to cut it down and that's made the framework very unsteady so we're very very wary of anybody actually getting in the bed in case the Tester falls down on them and kills them.
3: <laughs> that would be unfortunate. It would
2: be terribly <laughs> unfortunate. We have had requests, right. but we always have to refuse, unfortunately.
3: Because I mean, it, it's, it's quite domed, isn't it? In terms of the, of <laughs> the you know, the mats that you've got on there, one would, one would, imagine that might not be that comfortable. But um... well,
2: no, it would have been incredibly soft. As you say, it's very, very high, and um, we know that there were steps. People had to have steps to climb up onto their beds in the Tudor period. And in fact, when we, um, when the museum acquired this in the 1930s um, it had, it had had bed extra rails put around the sides for people to step on um, but we d- we haven't displayed them in this display because we think that they were added later I mean maybe when I say later maybe in the 18th century or the 19th century um, but we took them off for this display because we felt that they weren't integral to the original bed
3: okay so let's talk a bit about the, the history of the bed then because as you said you haven't got any documentary references to its to its construction um, but you know it was around in the, in the 16th century in Ware, yeah. which is yes. north of London, a, yes. a coaching town north of London. Um, and then uh, the next point you've mentioned is 1931 when you acquired it. So what do we know between those two dates? Between points? those
2: two dates. Well, as I said, the first mention was uh, of the bed was by a German traveller who described a bed um, wide enough for four couples to sleep side by side. And that was in 1596. Um, <clears throat> but the main... Um, one of the principal reasons that the bed is now revered as a kind of icon of, of British history is that um, Shakespeare mentioned it in 1601 um, in his play Twelfth Night when he, um, he um, wrote that Toby Belch would uh, mentioned a sheet uh, big enough for the bed of wear, the bed at wear, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> um, so this is the only piece of furniture mentioned by, by Shakespeare. Well, very few pe- pieces were mentioned anyway, but... This is the only piece of furniture mentioned by Shakespeare which still exists, and it's... Is it's sort of an icon because it's like a direct link back to Shakespeare and mm. back to the 16th century. So that's its main, one of its main sort of claims to, to fame now.
3: So but did, do we think that Shakespeare would actually have seen this then? Have we got any, any indication that he would have known? Or was, it, was he well, just working on, you know, it was a, a widely known piece of furniture at the
2: time? Um, he might have well have known it because it was a day's ride north of London. And mm. anyone um, travelling north of London uh, might well have stayed over in Ware. Um, so it's entirely possible that he had seen it. Mm-hmm. But I think it was very, f- uh, very famous early on, so who knows mm. whether he saw it. But after that, there were very many uh, references. It became a, um, a kind of um, symbol of size, and Ben Johnson mentioned... In fact, Ben Johnson, in his play *Epstein or The Silent Woman, um, coined the phrase, the great bed of wear, in 1609. Um, and after that, it was mentioned by many, many um, travellers, and um, in bawdy tales, it, it cropped up. Uh, There was one um, report in an 18th century newspaper that 26 butchers and their wives had slept in the bed um, for a wager. I think that's pushing it slightly. 26 butchers and their wives. And their wives, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That that would be a tight squeeze. Yes, and actually, uh, as time went on, I think people forgot the origin of it, and sometime in the 18th century, um, the date 1463 was written across the headboard, which is now been, I think that was on the previous, sorry, across the tester, I think that was on the previous tester because it's gone now. Right. But they obviously had no idea how old it was. Um, It's only now when we look back and we can fit it into the kind of history of Tudor furniture that we know... uh, no it's approximate date which is 1590s
3: okay so it stayed in wear for for most of its life did it or did it move yes it
2: as well? yes it stayed in wear um, until um, six, uh, 1864 um, when um, the last uh, inn keeper had to sell her 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 property when her f- husband died and um, at that point it was put up for auction and we know that the museum authorities considered buying it but in the 1860s, and the museum itself here was uh, in ve- at a very early stage. It was only 10 years old, and um, it wasn't regarded as a very fine specimen. It was said of very mutilated, as it as it is indeed it is. So um, a local hotel owner bought it and took it to Rye House in Hodden, and it became one of his principal exhibits. And um, with the introduction of railways, um, it became one of um, the principal destinations on the um, Eastern Railway. And thousands and thousands of people went up to Rye House, uh, where they had uh, cricket grounds and, you know, roundabouts and things, but they also... and tea gardens. And they had, he built a little house um, for the Great Bed and it became one of his principal attractions. So it continued as a tourist attraction mm-hmm. until um, the 1930s, when uh, Rye House was closed.
3: OK, just taking you back to, to the Tudor period for a second... Why would uh, a late Elizabethan inn in a, in a small town north of London want to be a tourist attraction? Why, why would it want people to be coming to it?
2: Well, Ware um, was had um, numerous inns, and I think it may have been a competition between the inns in the town of Ware. I mean, there were—I um, can't, I don't know exactly how many, but there were. All the way, all the way down the High Street, there was inn after inn after inn because that was the um, that was the principal um, trade of the town. Mm-hmm. So possibly it was competition between innke- innkeepers. So you've
3: said it's uh, it's not a, a, a typical piece of Tudor furniture, um, and I, you know I assume that all Tudor people were not sleeping in enormous beds like this. No. So no. Uh, is it you know what do we know about Tudor beds? Were, were they presumably well, much smaller than this and and not so grand?
2: Yes, I mean. Most Tudor furniture that, that survives is made of oak because it's much the most um, sort of long-lived material. And um, so there's a kind of feeling that um, all... You know, some people think all Tudor furniture is made of oak, but that's not the case. It's a, I mean, very few pieces of Tudor furniture survive at all. Um, but... Um, most people would not have very much furniture in their houses. In fact, their bed would have been um, one of their, you know, main main pieces, and they may, might have had stools and maybe a trestle table, perhaps one armchair for the head of the family. Hmm. But other than that, um, maybe they would have had um, a chest for their linen and um, you know any valuables that they had. It would have been very. The houses would have been very bare. So, um, yeah, this would have been a very splendid piece of furniture for that period
3: so for the average man in the street coming to wear off the street and wear this would have been given the paucity of furniture lying around in their own houses this would have been quite a surprising thing
2: they yes they would have been very very impressed by this piece amazed I would have thought and um, one of the other interesting things is that people wanted to leave their mark on the bed of wear so you can see here let's have a look um, on the post, this is one of the side posts of the bed, and people have inscribed layer upon layer of graffiti, what we, we would call carved graffiti. They've carved their initials and um, dates. I, th- I think the earliest date we found carved on the bed was uh, 1696. But I think throughout its history, people have been carving their names. Sta- if they came and stayed in the bed, they would have time to carve their names. And um, you can also see on the top here a lot of um, red seals. Mm. Uh, that's sealing wax, where people would have dropped a piece of red wax and then put their, pressed their uh, signet ring into the seal. And oh, that's another way. Oh. Yes, yes, they're still there. They're indecipherable, unfortunately. We haven't been able to, to um, identify any of them. although yeah. we, did, we did try. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a way of people leaving their mark. Yeah. And funnily enough, there's a, a lion in the centre of the headboard a carved lion over there and someone has actually put a wax seal in the middle of his nose <laughs> so they had absolutely no respect yeah. yes and you can see people have actually carved their um, initials on the marquetry in the reserves on the headboard as yeah. well yeah
3: and, that, and that's, that brings us to, to why we're talking about it today, because you're about to dismantle it once more and, and ship it back to where for, for a year to go on exhibition in, in their town museum? So, yes, yes. How are you going to do that? What's, what's, what's the process going to be?
2: Well, it requires a lot of manpower mm. and um, uh, zip-up um, frames to go up the, the size because the, the most difficult thing is the heaviest part of the bed is this canopy or tester, right. and that has to be very carefully removed right at the very beginning, um, and that's got to be crated. It doesn't come apart. It's absolutely enormous. So that's all. Um, that,
3: that's just one large one large piece, one large piece and right.
2: that is, I think, the the difficulty with the bed is that each component part is in, in incredibly heavy, but the two most difficult pieces to manage are the tester and the headboard, which again is in one piece. So these have got to be crated, and that'll add to their uh, the size, yeah. and it's going to be very difficult. We've we've had to work out which doors they can go through. They've got to go out of this door by the side here, down into the Raphael Cartoon Court, where they'll be crated. And then we've worked out a route, and we had to measure the front doors of the museum to make sure that the crates would actually go through the front doors of the ah, museum. Right. So um, so once the tester and the headboard have been taken away, then the rest of it comes apart relatively easily. But I mean, you can see that these. Um, corner posts are incredibly heavy in fact they're made out of four pieces they were originally made out of four pieces of oak which were joined together and turned so each constituent part is is very heavy in its own right
3: and was it was it designed to be taken apart and dismantled It mean, was it like flat pack furniture back yes. in the day
2: well, that's an interesting question because most most historic beds were designed to be taken apart. They normal, they're normally fixed together by metal bolts that go through the the constituent parts. So they are they are designed to be dismantled, but not very often.
3: Right, right. So presumably, when it was when it was first put up, it would have been taken into into the inn and where, in a similar fashion to its, as it's coming out here, um, yes, and yeah. someone would have erected it in situ in the bedroom and then. When it, when it came to be taken down again, they would have yes. they would have done what you're about to do.
2: Oh, that's an interesting point actually, because this must have been have had a, they must have had a lot of manpower and some kind of scaffolding going on around to, to lift the tester up because you couldn't you couldn't do it with ladders. You would have to have some form of scaffold in order to be um, strong enough to, yeah. lift, to lift this the weight of the of the oak.
3: What, what does something like this tell us about Tudor society? Do you think does it give us a, a particular insight into into life in the sixteenth century?
2: Yes, I think it, one thing it does tell us is they were they were not so different from us that they liked a spectacle, um, they liked novelty, and they were intensely commercially competitive, um, and um, the, there was an element of uh, a, a tourism in, in that people would go to where to see the bed. So it tells us um, that actually. Human nature doesn't change that much.
1: That was Kate Hay from the Victoria and Albert Museum. The bed of ware has been dismantled and will be on display in Ware Museum from the 6th of April. And you can find out more about that at waremuseum.org.uk. We also have a slideshow of the bed being dismantled on our website at historyextra.com forward slash bedofware. Well that's all for this episode. We'll be back again next week when we'll be discussing religion and the FBI. Be sure not to miss it. In the meantime, don't forget to check out our website historyextra.com where you can find quizzes, image galleries, blogs, features and details of our new Kindle edition. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.